Hello. We hope that you're doing well. We're really glad that you've decided to take out some time and spend it with us as we talk about some spiritual things. My name is Ethan, and I work with the Vengeance of Christ, and we're disciples making disciples on the west side of Los Angeles. And it's a great opportunity to, to join us as we're talking about our, our special series on Reconnect. When we talk about Reconnect, we start out with this idea that people seek to love and be loved. And this makes sense, because people are made in the image of God. And God is love. And He shares in love among Himself and toward His creation. As we can see in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. John chapter 3 and verse 16. First John chapter 4 and verse 8. And as we discussed previously, if you had joined us for Reconnect Love. Because of these things, we can see that man was therefore made in love for love. And that love that he's supposed to have is with his with soul and all strength, and also to love his neighbor as himself, in Matthew 22, 32. So we can love God, because God has loved us. He has sent his Son to die for our sins, and we can be reconciled to him through Jesus, in Romans 5, 6-11, 1 John 4, 7-20, passages. And in his wisdom, God established the church to represent people from diverse backgrounds, and we have who find their shared unity in the faith of Jesus stronger than any other thing that might divide them. In 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 2, chapter 3, verse 10 through 11, also chapter 4, verse 11 through 16. And so it is in the church where we should be able to find the ultimate expression of love for God and for one another, in which each member feels they have found exactly that which they receive, being reconnected both with God and with their fellow man. That's this whole idea. So that's the big part of this search for love really involves the desire to be accepted. Because after all, what do we mean when we say that we want to be loved? Part of the desire to be loved, right, is to be accepted. When we want people to love us, it's because we want them to see who we really are in that situation, to be valued and honored because of who we are, or maybe even despite who we are. And so if we're really going to be able to do this, reconnect with God and with our fellow man, we must address our need for acceptance. Why do we seek acceptance? How far will we go in order to be accepted or to be acceptable? How can God accept us, and how can we effectively accept one another? We'll be what we're talking about today. I hope that you uh, will join us as we continue. Because humans are social creatures. We saw that. And when we talked about Reconnect Love, that nobody really wants to be the Ebenezer Scrooge, right? That, that doesn't seem fun at all. And if you're truly a hermit that wants nothing to do with your fellow man, you're really not going to be listening to this because you won't have internet or you won't have anybody who would send it to you and you're out completely isolated from your fellow man. So the fact that you're sharing in, in the internet or sharing uh, in a community in some form shows that we're social creatures. That's the reason we're social creatures. We work with one another. We work with one another. We want to be accepted by one another. And ideally, we have the type of character disposition ideally are likable people. But at the time, as I'm sure you're well aware, we're not all ideal. We're all imperfect. As we've seen in Romans 3, verse 23, we've all sinned, all fallen short of the glory of God. And as a part of how we've fallen, we've, we've also fallen for the big lie. That no one will accept me for who I am. 
How many times have we felt in life, if people really knew who we were, how we felt, or what we did, that they would reject us? That we become convinced that that's the case. That if people really knew deep down what we thought and what we felt and how we acted, we begin to hide that away and we put on an acceptable exterior, something that people can, can, can accept at face value. And so it really gives us this question. How many of us are willing, or more than willing, to play the hypocrite in order to be accepted? The word hypocrite actually has a really interesting background. It's a Greek word, hupokrites, and it was a word used. And in its earliest usage, it had a positive connotation. People in, in, in Greek culture enjoyed going to the theater and seeing actors perform on stage. Uh, but toward the time of Jesus, it started getting this more negative connotation. Especially since Jesus used it in Matthew 23 to describe the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees were those who said one thing, thought one thing, but did something quite different. And so if we say one thing, but we're doing another, we're certainly hypocrites as well. But hypocrisy goes beyond that. It goes back to that original Greek concept of being an actor. Because even if we're more consistent, that we actually try to line up what we say and what we do. Uh, but anytime we put on airs, or we put on a front, if we're trying to hide some part of ourselves, we really turn our lives into an act, and the world becomes our stage, and we remain hupokrita, we remain actors, don't we? If we are living our lives, and we're hiding how we really think or feel, and we don't we don't tell anybody, we don't let anybody know about it, and we have this front. It's like we're acting, playing ourselves in a different way than what we truly are. How many times are we willing to adapt to the conventions of a group in order to be accepted into it, for, for better or for worse? How many people have gone down the paths of sin and engaged in revelry, sexually deviant behavior, or denied Jesus in his way, because that's the way they felt the, that they would be able to be accepted by a group? The Bible warns about this in John 12, 42 and 43, that many wanted the praise of men over the praise of God, and that's why they believed in Jesus but would not publicly say so. And these other things are just our works of the flesh in Galatians 5. And there's a lot of people who engage in this stuff, and they do it because of peer pressure. They feel like, well, or I feel like I'm going to be accepted in this group and go out drinking with them can we think of? And it's not even just a, an issue of lack of religion, unfortunately, as well. How many Christians put on a holy, sanctified exterior when their lives and their relationships are actually quite weak and fun? Now, it's true. You know, good people we hang around with, it may be easier to do the good things, and that's certainly the way it should be, but a lot of times it's very easy as Christians, when you're around other Christians, to just put on the holy exterior, to act like you've got it all together, act like everything's great and you are holy and everything's in all of your relationships and you, you act in this very holy way. But internally, really, behind the scenes, and nobody's watching, you're falling apart, your, your, your relationships are falling apart, uh, there's not really enough honesty, not enough willingness to confront the depths of our sin problem. Let's think about it for a second. So we do all this acting to be accepted. And I think we all do it to some extent. Right? But how 
does the acceptance of our external actor really satisfy? Because even though we go to all these lengths to be accepted, do we really feel like we're being accepted? And in fact, some ways, acceptance of the actor is even worse than if we were just fully rejected. Because we can be easily consumed by this fear that if the people who accept us for the actor, or they accept the actor part of us, if they knew who we really were inside, how we really feel, think, and act, that we would certainly be rejected. So we're kind of in that tension where now we put up the front, we keep putting up that front. We can never really be honest, we can never really be true to ourselves because we're, we're afraid they're going to reject us because they've accepted the actor, it's not really necessarily accepted. So, quote unquote, pretend through life that we internally waste away in pain and fear and sin. We're yearning to be accepted, but we're too afraid to trust enough to open up and be honest and to show people what's really going on. And it's that fear of rejection, the perpetuation of this hypocritical exterior, this act that we're putting on, that, that caused such damage in our lives and really are two of Satan's greatest assets. It really keeps a lot of people subjugated. And not able to live fully godly lives and people to happiness and contentment in Jesus. It's interesting we talk about this because we're talking about fooling other people. God, however, is not going to be fooled because God knows the heart. So we see in Psalm 44, 21, Daniel 2, 22, and Luke 16, 15. God knows who we are. God knows the condition of our heart. And since God knows all these things, and we know in First Peter, He is the Creator in Genesis chapter one, all these great things about God. If anybody has the right to reject people and to not accept them, it's God, right? Because we've all sinned and fallen short, as we've seen in Romans three twenty three, and God is holy and high and exalted above the heavens, and too pure as to see but to see sin, and as Habakkuk expresses so eloquently. We've all turned our back to God at some point. We've all acted in ways that are hostile to God. In Romans chapter 8, verses 7 and 8. And in fact, some people believe this. Well, you know what? God can never accept me. I am just too sinful. I have done too many wrong things. I've gone too far in the depths of sin. God can never accept me. And this is really the great lie, isn't it? If anyone knows who I really am, they could never accept me. Well, God knows who I really am, therefore God cannot accept me. And that's, that's the attitude there. And this view can be easily reinforced when we talk about the fact that, yes, God is holy. God has established a standard of righteousness, as we, saw, we can see in Galatians 5 very easily. There are the works of the flesh we're supposed to avoid. There are the fruit of the Spirit that we're supposed to manifest and do. Okay. When we recognize our sinfulness, it's very easy to say, well, wow, man, it is a lot harder to avoid lust and to have love and joy and peace and patience. Then the opposite. Oh man, I can never become righteous. I can never get to that point. And therefore they feel they're condemned without any hope in the world to ever become righteous. And, that, and there's some truth to that. If God's acceptance of us were based upon our behavior and, or our righteousness, then yeah, absolutely yes, God could never accept us because we all continually fall short of His glory. In Romans 3 and verse 23, we're, we're, we all stumble, we all fall short. So if, if, we're, if we're being accepted or, or rejected in the face of performance, yes, we're always going to be rejected. But that's the wonderful part of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, is that God's acceptance of us is not based upon our behavior or our righteousness. 
That in fact God loves us and has sent his son to die for our sins despite the fact that we are sinful. And in fact this is the core message that Paul has for us in Romans chapter 5 beginning in verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have been now justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Notice what Paul's saying there. God commences off for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were weak, Christ died for the ungodly. Our reconciliation with God is and His mercy that He has extended to us through Jesus. Not on the basis of anything that we have done. Paul, and, and Paul reinforces that in Titus chapter 3, 3, 3, where he says it's not based upon works done in righteousness. It's not because we're so awesome that God accepts us. Quite the contrary. God is accepting us because of His extravagant love, grace, and mercy. And so therefore we have to understand that God is willing to accept us by that grace and mercy despite who we are what we have done. And that is why Paul is able to say in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12-17 through 17, that he who is a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a murderer received mercy to show that Christ came to save sinners. That no one is beyond the grace and mercy and love of God. If he who did all these terrible things could be saved, so can anybody else. Because God's offer of forgiveness through Jesus Christ is greater and stronger than any of our sins and our deficiencies. And so God in Christ stands willing to accept us for who we are. As long as we are willing to accept Him for who He is. To put our trust in Him and to follow in His ways. As we can see, for instance, at the beginning of the letter, first letter of John, in chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 2 and verse 6. And we can look in the gospel stories in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's all kinds of stories there of people who are sinful. Sinful people who come to Jesus and they listen to him gladly. Was it because they denied they were in sin? No, they knew they were sinful. But they didn't want to remain in sin. And they listened to Jesus because he was willing to, to condescend and to engage with them. As Jesus will use chapter 9, verse 13 the great physician, that those who are sick, those who are healthy, excuse me, have no need for physician, but those who are sick, and that these people knew they were sick, they had this problem, so they go to Jesus for healing. God cannot accept us while we reject Him. And we reject Him when we put our trust in our own ways, and we act against His purposes without sorrow or regret, in Romans 8, 7-8, and also in Hebrews 10, 26-31. Furthermore, if we think that we're healthy on our own, that we don't need God, that we'll be able to get this all sorted out on our own, like the Pharisees seemed to do in the old days, then we're not going to take advantage of what Jesus offered by being a great physician. And so we're going to find ourselves dead in our sins. And so Jesus today, thus is this day, knows that we are weak and sinful. And he gives us the opportunity to confess our sins, to be forgiven of our sins if we're willing to turn from them. If we have not yet come to God in Christ to be saved, that we can 
that God has sent Jesus, that Jesus has been raised from the dead, that we can confess that faith that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that we can change our hearts and minds like we're talking about, head in the ways of Jesus, to repent, and to be immersed in water in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins and be follow him as a disciple. And as a disciple, when we fall short and when we stumble, that we confess that to God. We say, yeah, this is how I messed up. And in that, to receive forgiveness. So our relationship with God is not awesome people. It can never be, because we stumble, and we're not awesome people. We're sinners. Our relationship with God is predicated on our trust in God. As any relationship is based upon trust. If we truly trust in God, God is not going to forsake us. He's not going to leave us, but He will strengthen us and guide us on holiness and sanctification. In Romans chapter 8. Now what all that means is that if God sent His Son, God's going to really give us all things. That if we put our trust in God, we will be strengthened to walk according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. That we will become the kind of people that God expects us to be. Yes, God has expectations. We need to work to meet them. But we're not going to be able to do that until we find acceptance at the point where we're at right now. And God is willing to meet us there. God has done extravagant things to meet us where we are so that He can come and take us and make us as He would have us to be if we trust in Him and submit to Him that He will make us conform to the image of His Son. He can do that if we stop rejecting Him, if we stop turning away from Him and going on direction, but turning toward Him and doing the things that He would have us to do. God stands willing to accept us despite who we are, what we've done, if we trust in Him. And when we trust in Him, we can be the type of people that we should be. The kind of people we really want to be ourselves. We've got to turn from our own ways first. Now, as you said, God intends for the church where we find the ultimate expression of love for Him and for one another. And therefore, God intends the church to be the place where we find the ultimate expression of acceptance of God and one another. Now, if we live in the world, not, we, we can see very easily that people find ways of being aggressive against each other, hostile toward each other, then just they despise each other. They can find reasons of race, class, gender, ethnicity, religion, language, countless other ways. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18. Paul makes it very clear that in Christ, through the cross, Jesus has killed the hostility. He says in Ephesians 2, 11 through 18, specifically in terms of Jews and Gentiles. But he also says in Galatians 3, 28 and Colossians 3, 11, that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither male nor female, neither slave nor free, neither Scythian nor barbarian. That all of those distinctions become moot in light of the shared faith we have in Jesus, the shared inheritance we have in Jesus, the fact that we, we are all saved in Christ. And so as God proves willing to accept us despite who we are and what we have done, we must prove willing to accept one another and others despite who they are and what they have done. This gets to the core of what Jesus is saying in Luke 6, 31-38, to be merciful, as your Heavenly Father is merciful, because He uh, shows love to the ungrateful, to the evil. Okay. Have people in the world sinned? Yes. So have you. Romans 3, and verse 23. 
maybe the people we're talking about have not just sinned in general, they've sinned against you. Well, as Jesus says in Mark 11, 25-26, forgive them, lest you not be forgiven of your sins before God. Do you think that you have a reason to cast somebody, anybody, to cast them off, and to have no care for them and to not love them? Well, what if God felt that way toward you? Put simply, we will never be able to maintain the relationships that God intends for us to maintain with each other if we cannot truly accept one another. Are we perfect? No, we're not perfect. We have sin. We fall short of the glory of God in Romans 3 and verse 23. We all are beset by various sins, the sin that clings so closely in Hebrews 12 and verse 2. If we feel that we cannot trust anyone in the church, lest we be exposed to who we really are and be rejected, how can we really receive encouragement from the church in the struggle against sin? And this is what God is heading toward in some degree in Galatians 6 and verse 2 when Paul says, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Yes, we can talk about physical burdens and all kinds of things, but there's also the, the burden of sin. And not that we are sharing each other's sins, but part of bearing one another's burdens is to realize that we all have our struggles, we all have our difficulties, and be able to be open and honest about that. And this is, quite frankly, why God expects for Christians in James chapter 5 and verse 16 to confess their sins to one another. As he says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Now first, we need to be very clear about this passage and what it's saying. Confessing sins to one another is something that can be abused. There are some churches that force that upon somebody. It's forcing you to confess your sins to a specific person. That's not what James is saying. This does not mean that every time you've sinned, you need to confess it to someone or everyone. This does not mean that every that, that sin sh- should be confessed before everyone. There may be some sins you've committed that by confessing before everyone causes more challenges and, and a stumbling block and offense uh, than it's worth. But what it shows is that each Christian must have some other Christian with whom they can develop this kind of trusting relationship. The kind of relationship where you can say, this is who I really am. This is what I'm struggling with. I need your support and strength. I need your prayer. I need to feel that I can be a part of this group and be connected with my fellow Christians for who I really am. Now, we talk about these things. We talk about accepting somebody where they're at which is what we're really getting at, because that's what God has done. God has accepted us where we are. And in the church, we need to accept each other for where we are. There's almost easy to have an almost kickstart reaction in our heads. Well, what about somebody who is unrepentantly sinning? What about church discipline? What about what God says about righteous standards? Now, look, there are times when people seek to persist in sin while maintaining a religious exterior, and they refuse to repent. And that's why Paul tells us what he tells us in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1 through 13. That if you've got somebody who is acting all holy on the exterior, but has this public obvious sin, or, or has this sin that they're doing and they're not repenting of, they're not changing, there is this process of church discipline that they are to be warned, they are, when they, if they persist in it, to be, to, to be disassociated from. Absolutely. 
But even if somebody needs to be disassociated from, it's not like they're being shunned or banned or, or, or treated like an enemy. No, Paul will say in, in 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 15, in Galatians 6, 1 through 3, that we're to love them and we're to work toward them with gentleness and humility to bring them back. It's not to, We're not kicking them out because we don't like them anymore. We're, we're kicking them out in, if that situation happens, which is a terrible situation, is because we have to trust in God. And when we keep persisting in our own stubborn ways, when we know what God has said, we're not trusting in God anymore. The, the thing that we've held in common is no longer held in common. But it's an, we really want them to get that back in common, to change the way, to come to themselves. And it's not to say we're not to uphold God's standards of righteousness. We, are, we must declare what is right is right and what is wrong is wrong. And as, as Paul is told in 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5, Timothy, Paul tells Timothy, because there's going to be times, and there are plenty of people today who will stand up and tickle ears and wander off into myths and to no longer endure the healthy teaching, who want to be told that their problems aren't really problems and point fingers at everybody else and to feel good about where they're at, that they don't need to grow anymore. Okay, that is absolutely true. We need to uphold those standards. But when we uphold that standard, we need to realize that just as we as individuals can keep failing at it, so does everybody else. None of us reach that standard perfectly. We teach and preach what is right and true and holy, but we're not always doing what is right and true and holy. We don't reach that standard at all times. And that our relationship with God is not based upon performance, but based upon His love and grace and mercy. In Ephesians 2, 1-10, Titus 3-8, 1 John 1, 8-9. Consider, if you will, in the letter of Jude, which often kind of gets neglected there toward the end of the Bible. Jude 1, beginning in verse 20, Jude says, But you, beloved, build yourselves up in your most holy faith, pray in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. Notice how Jude is constantly going back to that concept of mercy. He's been talking most of his letter about false teachers and, and speaking very sharply about not partaking in their evil deeds and to stand up against what they're doing. But even here he's saying, show mercy to those who are struggling. Uh, look to the mercy of Jesus and to show mercy with fear, recognizing some people are still in dirty in the flesh. And that's why we, we're, we're showing that mercy with fear and trepidation a little bit. Reverence to God. Not participating in that evil. So we do best when we magnify God and His righteousness, while continually making clear that we ourselves are works in progress, that we are imperfect, and that we are always in need of love and mercy, grace and forgiveness. If you stand above somebody and point fingers down at them, they, they don't want to, they're not going to necessarily listen, and they're going to just shut up and close up and move on. But if you're saying, hey, I, this is where I'm at, this is, this is what I'm going through, but I've seen this is, this is the better way, this is the right way to do. I'm trying, I'm not doing it the best, but this is definitely the way. People are, are more open to that. People are more open to that. Now when this balance is not maintained, God is not truly honored. There are many groups who do err on the side of tolerating things they shouldn't tolerate, accept things they shouldn't accept, and by doing that, they're departing from God's standards of truth and righteousness and are considered as accursed, having preached a different gospel in Galatians chapter 1, verse 6 through 9. The people that we said Paul was warning Timothy about in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 through 4, and chapter 2, and 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. So yes, we're not to justify what is wrong. But what happens when a group errs on the side of judgmentalism? 
where if anybody is struggling with a sin and admits it, they're treated as if that's somehow shocking. Or they are... Everybody treats them with disdain and contempt because they dare to open up and be honest. Well, those who remain and don't run screaming are going to keep up the holy exterior. And they're afraid of any transgression being exposed lest they lose face and be rejected. You can't feel comfortable confessing sins in that kind of environment. And anybody who's outside looking in may receive the impression that they're not at that level of holiness even if they want to be well disposed to that group, that, man, these people are holy. I'm not that holy. I can't be a part of them. And therefore, they, they don't feel like they're even worthy of that association. And if they're not willing to give the benefit of the doubt, they see the hypocrisy involved in that spiritual social club, which is what it's become. And they want no part of it. And in such an environment, spiritual relationships cannot reach significant depth. You can't really have true trust and that body acts dysfunctionally. It's against what God intends in 1 Corinthians 12, 12-28. And we do well to keep in mind these very corrosive effects of judgmentalism. There's a reason why Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, says what he does in Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Judge not that you not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite! First take out the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Start and deal with matters of sin. But that's still in the Bible. You can't put asterisks on that to remove it from the Bible. Because judgmentalism is often a cloak by which we vaunt ourselves and we elevate ourselves against those whom we perceive to be spiritually inferior, like the Pharisees did. We got that prayer of that Pharisee in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14, which is such an appropriate condemnation, where the Pharisee, when Jesus has this example here in, in Luke 18, so two men went up to the temple and to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing afar off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And that is a lesson that too many Christians, too, too many Christians need to learn. That they're not better than anybody else because they follow Jesus. That they have no right to stand up and pray that God, to thank God that they're not like the people whom they despise. They're not to despise anybody. The one who is a terrible sinner will be justified before they will be because they're not humbling their heart before God. And when this judgmental attitude, if we have that judgmental attitude, we're trying to deflect judgment upon ourselves. It's a lot easier to look at everybody else's speck in their eye than to admit the log in our own eye. And how many people who prove to be very judgmental have a whole lot of holes in their own lives that they just don't want exposed, and it's a lot easier to put pressure on others than to face the pressure and heat themselves. And one cannot remain strictly judgmental in the face of love, compassion, grace, and mercy. We do well to consider, can the sick truly judge the sick? No. 
That is why Paul asks how we can judge the servant of another, Romans 14, 10 through 12. We all have our illnesses. One illness is not better or worse than another illness. They're all illnesses when it comes to sin. And we all need healing from Jesus. It's not given to, to believers to look down on others, to find reason to be separate, to separate ourselves from others, or to condemn others. It is for us to love others, to accept others, to be reconciled to one another as God has reconciled us to Himself, as we see in Luke six twenty seven to thirty eight. Maybe we do better to emphasize the value of humility and weakness, to encourage openness, and to denounce hypocrisy, than to foster hypocrisy through the judgmentalism that is far too prevalent in too many uh, Christians today. But we need to be honest. This, This true acceptance is hard. Acceptance is hard because it is hard to trust people. And it's very hard to humble oneself and to be willing to expose your weaknesses to others. So we have a great word for this, become vulnerable. The word vulnerable comes from a Latin word, vulner, which means to wound or wounding. And that's it. When we're, when we're vulnerable, we're able to be wounded. And the one thing that we learn very quickly in life is that if we get wounded, that we put up a wall. We put up a barrier in defense so that we don't get wounded again. And therefore, it becomes very hard to be willing to be wounded. But as long as we're not able to be wounded, we can't really love and grow either. And that's this challenge that we have. It's easier, always going to be easier to put up a front, put up a wall, than let people see who we really are inside. But acceptance demands more from the one who desires acceptance than the one who would accept them. If we want to be accepted, we need to be willing to trust other people. And we need to trust them even knowing that in some way we're going to be betrayed. That we're going to open up and in some way we are going to be hurt. Either somebody is going to judge us. Somebody may reject us. But you know what? We've also failed others because at some point we've rejected somebody else. We've, we've betrayed somebody else. We've hurt somebody else as well. People are going to fail us like just as we have failed others. But does that mean that we're going to give up? That we, we can't give up because we're still yearning for that acceptance. And so if we want to be accepted, we must be humble enough to come to grips with who we really are and what we have done. In James chapter 1, verse 22 through 25, James captures so well that we, we, we look at ourselves in a mirror. And the, man, the natural man sees that and walks away and forgets immediately what it is. That mirror is a law that we look into the, the Word of God and we see who we really are before God. And it's an ugly, disgusting picture. And we're given the choice. We can turn away and try to forget it. Or we can remember what that is to, to, to get down on our knees and to, to pray to God for forgiveness to to become a, a child of God and to follow after Him and to allow God to, to clean up that image, to be like His Son. If we want to be accepted, we're going to have to find strength in weakness. And that's a hard thing. We like strength. We want to project strength so frequently. Uh, we feel like if we project strength that it's going to allow us a, a better path. But yet, as Paul had to learn in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 9, that Jesus said to him, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. We are strong, we are weak, not because there is somehow some intrinsic virtue in weakness, but when we are weak and we depend upon God's strength, we receive true strength. Because our strength is just a front. It is not really true strength. 
True strength comes from God, and we can only get that when we humble ourselves, when we open ourselves up, when we allow us to become vessels of God for His purposes. And the church is supposed to be this place of acceptance. That as Jesus has accepted us despite ourselves, we need to accept one another despite ourselves. As we maintain a relationship with God through humility, repentance, and seeking and receiving forgiveness, that is how we need to maintain a relationship with each other, through humility, repentance, and seeking for, and receiving forgiveness. The last place that we should need to pretend to be something and somebody we're not is when we're among our fellow Christians who are seeking to serve and honor the Lord. The world is full of people who play the hypocrite, who really deep down want to be accepted for who they are, but are just too afraid that people, if they knew who they really were, would reject them. The world is also full of hostility and hatred, insecurity, fear, and division. Yet in Jesus, God is willing to accept everybody, despite themselves, in order to develop a relationship that's based in trust. And that's what the church is supposed to be too, a place where people can find relief from hypocrisy, rejection, hostility, insecurity, fear, and division. But the church can only be a respite from these things when Christians prove willing to trust one another, to be open and honest with each other, and to accept one another despite everything. There is great power in the witness of a life that is lived authentically. A life where we don't need to have pretense and hypocrisy. A life where we can be open and vulnerable toward others. And that's why it's good for us to develop that kind of life ourselves and together as God's people, that we can find reconnection in God with one another to accept each other as God and Christ has accepted us. And we hope that you found that acceptance. And if you're still yearning for that acceptance and you need uh, to talk more about how you can follow after God, or, or maybe you'd like to talk more about some of the things we talked about in this lesson, or, or maybe you have a prayer request, or, or anything that we can be of service, please let me know. Please contact me through my website, theverbovitae.com. That's www.deverbovitae.com. And if you live in Los Angeles or travel in Los Angeles area, we'd always love to see you.